Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the African Family Business Research Conference. This evening, we'll be having a panel discussion focusing on challenges and resilience in uncertain times. We're joined by the panel um, members, uh, Mr. Moses Chundu of University of Zimbabwe in Harare, Zimbabwe, Ms. Kelly Alexander from Tilburg University in the Netherlands, Ms. Karina Bolaya, sorry, um, from Leuphana University of Lüneburg in Germany. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we've had a really, you've both presented, or rather all three of you have made presentations this evening. Um, and just following on from your presentations, I would like to hear from each of you whether in your studies there were any cultural influences that became apparent can we start perhaps with um, Mr. Moses? Thank you, Nike. Yeah, in our case, because we're looking at issues of sustainability of the business itself and the sustainability drivers, where we're seeing cultural aspects playing out quite significantly is the aspect of succession, where the woman who probably is knowledgeable better placed to be taking this business to the next level in the event of the untimely departure of the men, they are not quite empowered in terms of the structure of the the society itself. Once the man is dead, if succession is induced by death, they are kind of marginalized and we want to push the eldest son in the family. We are beginning now to embrace daughters. So if the guy didn't have sons, more and more having cases where empires are now being run by the girl child. But this preoccupation with the heir having to take over, and in some cases they have not been interested in the business, the person who is closer to the business is the girl child or the wife who was close to the activity. That has then played out to see the business being unsustainable and get a sense where we think maybe the family was not ready to take this to the next generation. And yet we are just sidelining the wife in this case because of cultural issues. Thank you. Um, Karina and Kelly, did you have any cultural um, themes that became apparent in your research study? Uh, yes, we, we did um, very much, so to say, actually. I think everything is kind of based on, on cultural issues also with our study. So relating also to what, what you both said, Nika and Tsitsi, yesterday morning, um, we, we definitely found those narratives and those collective stories that really shape the environment. And also, as Kelly has mentioned in our pre- presentation, the traditions, the patriarchy, um, this all influences um, the, the operating environment and therefore how the females that we interviewed were able to conduct their businesses. Um, I don't know, Kelly, if you want to add something maybe? 
Ach ja, I guess just briefly, I think it's it's uh, what we saw is it's at multiple levels. So in the case of Kenya, for example, um, okay, this is more a legislative thing, but legislation has changed to allow uh, the girl, child, or woman to inherit. But the the practice of that being taken up was slower than than just you know writing the legislation and changing that. Uh, so at a very high level, we saw it, and then we also saw it in sort of very daily interactions where. Um, as I also mentioned in the presentation, women would have to really think about how they engage with their staff, you know, because men would say, oh, you know, a woman can't talk to me in this way, even though she had employed him, paid the salary, those kinds of things. So I think it did filter through in, in various ways. Um, yeah, but as Jim says, very prevalent. Great. And um, how did you actually define family businesses in your studies, um, Moses? We'll start with you again. So this is where the structure of the ownership is such that more than 50% is owned by one family. That was the narrow definition that we, we took. Okay. And Karina and Kelly, how did you? I think ours was a little bit more fluid. So it was, um, we didn't have a number as such, but really just we were looking for those women where they are, um, engaged in, in agricultural practices on family land or on their husband's land. So uh, we didn't really dig into the, the specifics of, you know, how many families, but it was really sort of in the con- confines of a particular family and owning the assets and then working with those assets. Okay. And um, in the last um, two presentations ago, Moses, you made a comment about the definition of um, family businesses, sorry, businesses in agriculture not being commercial essentially so can we just unpack that a little bit in your opinion how should family businesses be defined and why do you consider agricultural businesses in Zimbabwe as not businesses? Thank you for the opportunity to put that in perspective so I think the whole thing is perceptional what I was trying to project is the how the businesses themselves are viewing themselves for El Marie, I think the issue between South Africa and Zimbabwe is quite, these sectors are quite distinct. Zimbabwe's agriculture sector, and I think so is the most of sub-Saharan Africa, is dominated by the small scale. And not just the small scale commercial, but actually the subsistence, the peasantry. It is that category which is in the majority where we are struggling actually to get them to view their farming even how small it is as an entity, as an enterprise, and engaged in business practice, that actually views it as a business. So when you look at South African farms, it's predominantly large scale, and most of those have their genesis from families and they're multi-generational by, by, by this time. So that's where I was coming from to say, it is the farmers themselves that actually don't want to see themselves as a business. And hence the question to say to Karina and Tim, in your sample, are these in the category where they actually perceive themselves as businesses? Or are they in this category where they actually don't actually see themselves as businesses? And then to analyze on the basis of that might actually give misleading perceptions and results about how family-owned businesses in agriculture specifically are fairing. So there's a context to, I think, to, to that remark. That's really helpful. Um, 
in Ruth, unfortunately, she's not here, but we'll still, in Ruth's presentation, she mentioned how the family businesses in her sample navigated the COVID pandemic. I'd like to hear from each of you. Um, what was your experience and that of the family businesses in your samples or the countries which you sampled? How did they manage the pandemic and what do they do to, um, to um, navigate the pandemic? Should we start with the ladies this time around, Kelly? Yeah, I'm actually trying to think. Um, I don't know if it's something that came out, uh, Karina, again, you can, you can correct me, but I don't know if it's something that came out, uh, explicitly or we definitely didn't ask about it. Um, yeah, I think what, what might be a topic in, in that instance, I mean, we started the data collection basically at the beginning of this year. So they were already kind of, not really accustomed, but it was in, in the middle of it. So it wasn't uh, the phase where they, where they first had to adopt from, but that is more a feeling than, an, than a, an actual result from my feeling. It would be also that because we have those small scale farmers, they were still continuing their for, small scale farm, farms, um, especially also because like food, um, as far as I know, but maybe I'm, I'm not completely right there, was not as restricted as other areas of business to be conducted. Um, yeah, but we, we didn't include this as a specific topic in, in our research, in our study. Um, and Moses, please. Thank you. Yeah, our study period invariably covered the last year being COVID, though the research itself was not couched in, in the context of COVID. But I'll still comment in terms of, and that's outside our study scope, what we've observed in the last two years in terms of how family businesses have been faring in the context of COVID. We had to deal with lockdowns, which I think in the case of Zimbabwe, we believe it was a bit premature. The moment we recorded our case number four, the country went on full lockdown and by the time now we are having real cases and the agents to really lock down is there, most businesses don't have capacity anymore to, to stand. And so the lockdowns disturbed the value chains. The few who were exempted were large corporates, but where most family businesses were operating was, was largely in trading and in agro kind of businesses. These two were the most affected by the lockdown rules. And the net effect, I think they, they're going to struggle to to come out. The picture is actually not looking good. The little packages that were put out for rescue and resilience, unfortunately, could also not reach the majority of family-owned businesses because of the problem of informality, where we are sitting at 85%. I think it was in Prof's uh, recorded uh, message there, where we are saying we could actually leverage COVID-19 to kind of drive the agenda for formalization. But they have seen the benefit and the damage of not being formalized. How in the presence of packages can government reach out to you when you actually don't know who you are, where you are, and what you are about? And what they've been squeezed They've been weakened by the lockdowns. It could present an opportunity post-COVID where 
we're talking of a reasonable level of formality, that should actually then put them and position them for growth. Most of the growth enhancing factors are very difficult to push through if you're in an informal setting and apps are not visible. So there's a dark side, but in principle, this thing is all creating traction that we can actually build and ride on. Excellent. Um, I just want to pick up on what you were speaking about on the formality um, or lack of formality of structures on the continent. And you kind of cited that um, we need um, governments to do more to push an agenda of formalization. So can you elaborate more on that and your your thinking on what what it is the government can do um, and what break it down a bit more when we talk about informality, um, what does that look like? And when you're talking about formality, what, what, what does that look like as well? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so our experience here, which we believe is pretty much said in the broader sub-Saharan Africa, when we say these businesses are informal, they're actually not properly registered. In our case, it's incorporated in terms of the Companies Act. And that's a starting point in terms of accessing most of the growth-enhancing factors. Your banking, it's very difficult to open a banking account if you are not properly incorporated. And if you are not banked, that means you cannot participate in most of the subsidies that are rolled out, whether by governments themselves or by non-governmental organizations supporting specific groupings. So because you are not visible, you cannot participate in certain areas. Issues of tender, I think there was the issue of markets in Kenya, to say there are certain groupings that are preferring to order from women as a strategy to promote women-run enterprises. But if the, the woman is not properly constituted, it is very difficult to move the product across the borders. So it's an issue of having the relevant paperwork. There are slight variations in terms of the laws of the different uh, countries, so to speak. But by and large, you want to be able to meet those minimum. Our era here, we've been pushing the agenda of collecting tax. So it has been about government, not about the entities. We want you visible so that we can milk you. And that has created a lot of resistance in terms of wanting to formalize their operations. But we are saying with COVID and the vulnerabilities around it, we could repackage the story and make it about them, not about governments. That might increase the appetite to want to be formalized. And in the process, embracing factors that help with resilience, growth and sustainability. Excellent. Um, And Kelly, Karina, do you have any comments on this formality issue? Uh, Yeah, so so just uh, very briefly, just building off uh, what Moses has said, and this comes from research that I did on social enterprises across sub-Saharan Africa. And I think one of the challenges in terms of formalizing is that organizations that are already in this space are very uncertain around the organizational form that's appropriate for them, given that uh, their tax implications or it seems like the, the, the legal forms that are available are for organizations that are much bigger and then it becomes so burdensome. And I think that's, that is a key area that, that policymakers really need to dig into further is to try and figure out how to make it so much simpler and to create organizational forms that are appropriate in terms of tax 
in terms of labor legislation, all of those kinds of, um, sort of concessions that need to be made to foster and facilitate uh, small businesses and, and social enterprises or female-led businesses and family businesses, for example, uh, to really encourage them to come up. Because otherwise, I think the, the perceived barriers and, and the actual barriers are, are quite um, severe. Yeah, correct. I completely agree on the issue of simplifying the processes. I mean, not even unlearned. You're talking of yourself as a professor. You want to formalize your business. Just the paperwork involved, the offices that you have to knock, the bureaucrats that you have to overcome, the corruption that you have to deal with. When you put it all together, it's not worth the hassle. So it comes down to simplifying it and making it about the business, not about government. Excellent. Um, and to Karina and Kelly, I just wanted to know from your, your perspectives, um, from what you're seeing, not just on your research in Africa, but just globally amongst business owners, the challenges that they've been facing over the last 18 months and how they've been overcoming that. What, what key themes have you been seeing? Um, and that's one. And two, what lessons can um, those on the comment, those on the continent particularly learn from how other global players have been faring. I think one of the kind of key learnings is um, that that I've seen is that sometimes uh, action, or it's important sometimes to to take action to regain some control, and that might be entrepreneurial action because um, facing COVID kind of makes people lose the sense of having control over aspects in their environment and the surroundings. And um, to, to regain that sense basically of control, then entrepreneurial action might be a way of, of, um, of gaining some or a resilient way of reestablishing that sense. Um, I think that that is something that I've seen that sometimes uh, People were saying, or when I did interviews also with um, nascent entrepreneurs that were starting businesses before COVID and then were were kind of running into COVID, that they mentioned, okay, um, instead of like, I can't do nothing or it's better to do something than nothing. I just need to keep on moving. And um, I think that kind of channeling this this activity into an entrepreneurial mindset um, is, is always quite helpful. Kelly, if you have some, yeah, I, I suppose so. Or sitting in the Netherlands, um, what what really stood out for me was the extent of government support for for social enterprises, which again speaks to to the limitations of the informal side of things. But because these organisations were there and, and and were you know it was a clear market or a clear audience, government was was very active in in providing a lot of support. And at the same uh, or by the same token, the the local entrepreneurs and Selves were very vocal, very active, very um, eager to find workarounds, and and then communities really rallied. So people who would never order out started ordering out just in in the interest of supporting local entrepreneurs. So it, it is also, I think, about controlling the narrative and you know saying you know we're we're open for business, we're struggling in you know in terms of maybe staff shortages or trying to manage COVID as best as we can. Uh, but please help us and work with us and understand us. So I think a lot more of open communication between entrepreneurs and, and communities and um, it'll actually be interesting to see how that shapes the way that uh, you know local supply chains develop and, and if they've or how they emerge and, and if they are able to to last um, as we things go back to normal so 
And maybe just one more aspect that I um, that just came to my mind with regard also to what Ruth uh, said in her presentation. I think she also mentioned kind of the diversification and that it was also something that I was able to observe that there was some sort of kind of opportunity re-evaluation re process going on so that the um, that, that this was also an important factor from from what I observed um, in the business and from from the entrepreneurs that I interviewed um, that it was important for for them to reevaluate the opportunity that they were um, pursuing upfront to COVID so not get stuck so to say within the old system and just wait for things to return to normal but um, rather um, find a way also to of course see COVID as not like not totally something positive but find a way to perceive also opportunities within this setting and integrate those opportunities um, within your business or within the the idea that you were pursuing and I think that's basically also at least from what I see that that is globally kind of that that is something that is more about the the individual and the kind of cognitive processing um, that is relevant in Europe and Africa and so on uh, with regard to what Kelly was saying I was just thinking that um, from from my kind of point of view maybe this especially this aspect of formal institutions informal institutions that is something that was of course different um, for the entrepreneurs in different settings and in different cultures um, but I think the kind of cognitive processing is important in in either way excellent um just want to ask each of you for any closing thoughts comments on the topic of challenges and resiliency um, of for family businesses as and yeah so i'll start with moses please thank you yeah for me i'll just add in as a parting short to say family-owned businesses are businesses before they are family-owned the uniqueness comes in that it's owned by a family and we should be able to leverage the positives that come with control and ownership in one family but be able to leverage the tried and tested ways of doing things that actually apply to the broader business environment and one aspect that Ruth uh, mentioned is the issue of employee sharing plans one of the areas of reorganization is labor as we have seen as a coping strategy. But if you do not have the skill resident in your family, having to develop that over time may not be easy. And we need to be able to creatively develop frameworks that actually favor and allow for deliberate in terms of sharing the, the skills across families. Thank you. Um, Karina? I think um, my closing thought on kind of also resilience for family firms would be to, as as Moses also has mentioned beforehand, to also see or yeah see the COVID as kind of a trigger as well for, for changes that might be much needed. Um, so I think part of resilience is the learning from <laughs> from the past, but also to not only kind of bounce back, but bounce forward. So I think this is what, what I would believe is, is about family firms to kind of find the right mixture of keeping, of course, the traditions, but also finding a way to integrate the learnings and move um, move forward and use the experiences. And yeah, yes, I'm, I'm lost, but uh, or next. Uh, I suppose the two things. The, the one is that um, I think of this, the idea of uncertain times. And I mean, COVID gives us such a 
clear uncertain time. It's such an obvious event, but I feel like there's always uncertainty running a business. So these are kinds of things that probably organizations need to to just build into their into their everyday practices and sort of always thinking ahead and thinking of risk and being hyper aware of, of uncertainty, even outside of, of COVID in the sort of ordinary everyday kind of um, day-to-day running of their businesses. And I also think because I come to this uh, forum more from, a, as I said, a social entrepreneurship perspective. So the family business is, it's all very new, but what I hear is that there's so much overlap, you know, for female entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, family businesses in terms of learning and sharing. And, and I think in terms of lobbying or, or working together to, to build more resilience in the community, I don't think it has to necessarily be siloed. And there could be a lot of resilience in coming together and, and strengthening ties across these sort of um, overlapping, but, but independent uh, groups of organizations. Well, thank you all so much. This has been a really interesting, engaging conversation. Um, thank you all for attending as well. We will resume tomorrow at 11 a.m. Central African time for day three of Africa Family Business Research Conference. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Take care.